to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. John 1, 1 through 14. We looked at the first five verses last week concerning who Jesus is. And tonight we consider uh, the rest of the passage as we consider how it is that we come to believe in Him. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's Word. We'll be reading John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and our study will focus on 6 through 14. Hear now the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's look to Him in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word, a faithful Word about Jesus. And... Uh, We'll not learn anything tonight unless you are our teacher. We pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts in the knowledge of Christ. And we ask that you uh, would grant us the gift of faith. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. And we pray that you would bring all the glory to yourself and do good to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christians believe the most astounding things about Jesus. Now, last week we looked at those first five verses and we saw, just very briefly, we saw the, the incredible claims of the Bible about who Jesus is, that, that Jesus is eternal. He, it says, in the beginning was the word, that before God brought into being everything we see, Jesus already was. He's before all things. Uh, We saw that Jesus is distinct from the Father, and yet one with the Father. It says the Word was with God, toward God, face to face with God. But lest you think that means he's something less than God or other than God, he he, he tells you in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is, in fact, true deity. Uh, So that we're not to think of Jesus as some kind of uh, created being or some angelic creature, something less than God but greater than man. 
He's not that at all. He's nothing less than God. And we saw that he's the creator of all things. John makes this very clear. Verse 3, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And he's the source of spiritual life and light. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. We, we said, whatever spiritual life we're ever going to have, we have to get from Jesus. He's the spring from which it flows, from which we must drink. And we said finally, uh, you know, to recap last week's sermon and to look at what John says, we said that this word, this eternal word, became flesh, verse 14, and t- dwelt or tabernacled or lived among us so that God added to himself humanity without ceasing his divinity. He is the God-man. Jesus is God and man in one person. Now that's a, that's a mouthful. I really, that's, that's a lot of theology. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, I apologize. I didn't elaborate on those things again. Uh, you could spend a lifetime contemplating and delighting in the person of the Son of God. And you'd never plumb the depths or ascend to the heights of his glory. Um, but what we have just said is so amazing, many people find it hard to believe. Many people, as you well know, doubt. I think it was, I think it was Newsweek, News Magazine, it's an online thing these days, just published on maybe the 23rd or 24th, a long article about how foolish Christians are to believe the Bible and the, the truth about Jesus. There are a lot of skeptics tonight. And so we want to ask the question because John's gospel was written so that we might believe. That's John chapter 20. This word was written so that we might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. We want to ask the question, how does God persuade us to believe? What does he do to give us faith in Christ? And what is it if we have that faith? What is it that others who don't have that faith need from God? What should we think that they need from God? So those are some of the questions we want to address. And let me do it by working through the text under three headings. Uh, In verses 6 through 8, I want you to see that God meets us in our doubts with a witness. That's the verses about John the Baptist. Then in verses 9 through 11, I want you to see that God shines light into our darkness. And then finally, I want you to see verses 12 and following, that God gives life to the dead. Those three things, those three things that God does to bring us to faith in Jesus. Notice in the first place, verses 6 through 8, God meets us in our doubts with a witness. Look at the text. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. God sent someone into the world ahead of Jesus to prepare the way, to proclaim the coming of the glory of the Lord so that we would believe John and his witness about Jesus. Um, We we live, uh, you know, as I said, we live in a skeptical age. People think... 
You know, nothing can really be known about God. Nothing can really be known about eternity or, or the soul or the afterlife. Nothing with, with certainty anyway, people will say. People will say, and look, don't appeal to the authority of some ancient book or history. Nothing is trustworthy, they'll say. And people who write the books are biased, they'll say. Now, what should we do when we encounter a skeptic who says we can't know anything? I once read an author who said we should, we should tell him his zipper is down. You know, if you're at a party and he's got his arm, uh, you know, over the hearth of the fireplace and he's, he's just waxing eloquently about how well, nobody can really know anything. Look him in the eye and say your zipper is down. What will he do? He will check. Why will he check? Because he believed you and thought it was possible to know whether or not, in fact, his zipper was down. He believes something is positively knowable, even as he asserts that nothing is knowable. But he might respond to you, well, okay, I'll admit some things are knowable, but we can't know about God. Really, we should ask, how do you know so much about that? How do you know God is a God who can't be known if you, in fact, uh, affirm? Attest that you can't know anything about him. How can you be so certain about that? I thought you just said we couldn't know anything about him. You seem to be saying you know a lot about him. Well, then he might say, I don't. But all I can trust is my personal experience. Is my zipper down? I can check and prove by my own experience. Not by somebody else's witness. Not by the authority of somebody else. Nobody's reliable, some people will say. Well, then we might say, nobody's reliable? Then why are you reliable when it comes to your own zipper? Look, my point is this. Nobody lives like you can't know anything. Nobody really does. You couldn't function in life that way. People live like things are knowable. Uh... It's a rare skeptic who would refuse to believe in Australia because they've never been there and experienced it themselves. Why do people who've never been to Australia believe in Australia? I venture to guess most, for most of us, it's, it's because others told us about it. Others set foot on it. Others saw it, mapped it, took pictures of it. And based on their testimony and witness, we affirm the existence of Australia. We take, in fact, the existence of most everything in life based on the witness of reliable witnesses. Um, you know, on our mother's knee, she began to describe to us the world and put names to things, and we came to know them, and we believed her. <laughs> the better the witnesses, the more, the greater variety among them, the clearer and more consistent their testimony, of course the surer we are that we've got the truth. That's how we learn the truth, by and large, by the testimony of others. That's why you believe in Napoleon, if you believe Napoleon really existed. That's why you know the distance from the sun to the earth. That's why you know the date of your own birth. Somebody told you it. People do discover things and find things and see things on their own, and they tell us about them, and we give them the benefit of the doubt when we do. And my point of that, all that is this. God, before Jesus came into the world, 
laid 2,000 years of history or more, uh, prophetically telling us that Jesus was going to come, and, and on the very cusp of his coming, God sent John the Baptist into the world as a witness to the light, as a witness to Jesus. So what kind of witness is he? Is he reliable? Who is he? What does he say? Uh, can we trust him? Well, who is he? As, as you know, John, the, the so-called the Baptist or the baptizer, John was the first prophet in Israel for 400 years. It had been 400 years from the end of the giving of the books of the Old Testament until the coming of Christ into the world. And he's the first prophet since then. And Jesus said about John that he was the greatest human being that ever put his feet on this earth up until that time. Greater than David, greater than Moses, Elijah, Abraham. Matthew 11, verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says about him. Luke chapter 1 tells you that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the time he was a baby in his mother's womb. And so... This is John. Now, what did John teach? What did he say about Jesus? Well, if you've got your Bible open, just skim down through the first chapter for a moment. Look at verse 15. John said, John bore witness about Jesus and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks um, before me because he was before me. Jesus has said, there's no one greater than John. And John says, Jesus is of greater rank than me. In verse 27, John says this. He, uh, about him, uh, verse 26, 27, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even, who come, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John says... I don't even have the right, I'm not worthy to even stoop down in front of John of Jesus and touch his sandal, let alone untie his sandal. That's how great Jesus is. Verse 29, he says about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at verse 33, he tells us Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. Uh, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what John says about Jesus. But can you believe John? I was, uh, I was the foreman on a jury trial when we lived in Jackson, Mississippi. I think they picked me because I was a minister at the time, and they found out, and the jury thought, well, we'll make you the, the foreman. Nobody really wanted that job. It was a jury trial of a man accused of selling crack cocaine. It, 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 was this, it was actually a, like a little hard chocolate chip looking cookie without the chocolate chips in it. Uh, they passed it around through the jury in a plastic bag. So, of course, you didn't get any on your body. This was the evidence. Now, our jury concluded that the prosecution botched the case for a number of reasons. Uh, but what turned the issue into reasonable doubt for the jury was this. The only eyewitness was himself a drug dealer who had been given special favors by the district attorney's office in exchange for his testimony against this other drug dealer who now uh, was 
standing accused. And we found that witness unreliable. We feared he was lying to make life easier for himself. That is what people do. Now, I should just tell you how that ended up. We, so he, we, we, uh, we uh, acquitted him. And the judge came back into the jury room afterwards and he said, I don't want to know why you did what you did or what you were thinking, but just know this man is also <laughs> being charged with murder and all these other crimes. Uh, I think the judge was saying, I think we all think he's guilty. <laughs> but all we got to hear was about this one thing from what we considered to be one very unreliable witness. And uh, as an aside, I'll just say, I'm, I'm glad to live in a nation where you are innocent until proven guilty. And uh, I'd rather live in a nation where uh, even the guilty go free than that the innocent are imprisoned. But that's a little far away from the Bible. Just thought I'd finish that story for you. But in any case, why do people lie? People lie to make life easier for themselves, not harder. And John the Baptist, you have to ask yourself, was he the kind of man who would lie about who Jesus is as the Messiah and lie about his own calling from God to be a witness to Jesus? Is he that kind of guy? Well, consider his life. He got himself imprisoned by Herod for calling out Herod's illegitimate marriage to his brother's wife. But he he basically looked the king in the eye and said, you can't do that. And he got himself thrown in prison. He spoke the truth and it got him suffering. It made him an enemy of that wife who then incited her daughter on a special occasion when Herod was inclined to give her anything she asked for. The mother said, ask Herod for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so John was beheaded. John was the kind of guy who actually, uh, his life became far more difficult because he told the truth. Now, would he be the kind of guy who would lie about Jesus? No. We should believe him. People flooded the countryside to go hear John the Baptist. In fact, the religious leaders who opposed Jesus in Jesus' day... Um, they were afraid of John the Baptist, not because they thought he was wrong, but because he had all this influence with the people. They, the, the common people heard John the Baptist gladly and believed him. And they felt threatened by his message and his popularity with the people. But John is not the only witness we have. Uh, we have the other early evangelists. We have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John the Apostle who gave us this book. We have Peter and Paul all of who were persecuted and tortured for proclaiming the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus. No, friends, they did not make this up. I mean, there was nobody more likely in their day to reject the very idea that Jesus was God than a monotheistic Jew in Jesus' day. I mean, it was part of their main belief and preaching that there is but one God. And here they are, worshiping at the feet of Jesus, proclaiming him as their God. Uh, they believed. And 
John ought to be believed. And my point is that we have no good reason not to believe him. And yet, people still don't believe John. And some people aren't going to believe you when you tell them about Jesus. Why don't people believe? Because people don't naturally believe. The Jews didn't naturally believe. Verses 10 and 11, he was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, and he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Why don't people believe? Because they need something more than a witness, though the witness is reliable. They need God to shine light in their darkness, and God does that. Um, We shouldn't be surprised that the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. That's the way Israel often was. They were fickle in their faith. God had said about them in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3, he indicted his own people when he said, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. It was common for the Israelites To not believe God and his promises and his word. How is it possible they didn't believe? Light had entered the world. How could they miss it? Well, when does somebody have to bear witness to light? Ask yourself that question. John is a witness to the light. When does anybody ever have to witness to light? Have you ever been in a pitch black darkness? Have you ever been in a cave so deep? That uh, if you put your hand in front of your face, you can't even see it. And then maybe a guide or, a, or a, a friend turns on the flashlight. Does anybody have to say to you, the light is over here? <laughs> no. You immediately see the light. It's its own witness. It doesn't have to be pointed out. There's only one kind of person who needs to be pointed to the light. What kind? Blind people. And the Bible is saying everybody has been born into this world blind. We don't have eyes to see even the light that shines in darkness. Our darkness is blindness. Our blindness is darkness. Why didn't the Jews believe? Because they were blinded to the light. What blinds people today? Well, people, people are blinded by the idea that this is all absurd. The God who made the universe becoming man, that's crazy. How could the greatest become so small? How could he? Well, one answer to that is simply this. Well, he spoke the stars into existence. He came back to life from the dead. Nothing is too difficult for him. And he is not too proud to humble himself and become even a man for our benefit. But some people don't want to believe and they're blinded by the darkness of the idea that that this this is so shocking. I mean... If he's the true, everlasting, eternal, and all-powerful divine being, why did he come in weakness and suffer and be tortured and crucified? We answer to bring good out of the evil that was done to him. But some people will not believe in their darkness is blindness because this is just offensive. And it's offensive because Jesus contradicts us. Jesus says the wages of sin is death and I will die your death for you. And that message offends us. We don't want a physician uh, 
who speaks the truth. We don't want to hear uh, the truth. Uh, But what we need is a physician who will tell us the truth so that he can tell us what we need to be healed. So that he can say to us, unless I die for you, I cannot treat you. But it seems absurd to some, it's shocking, it it offends some, and for all these reasons people say, well, I cannot believe this. And others will say, "Uh, why is God hiding? Why not just show himself in some spectacular and miraculous way to every single person so that they will believe? Now, how should we answer that? Well, the answer is, he does show himself in spectacular and miraculous ways to all people. The Bible says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim uh, uh, the Lord and his glory day after day. And there is no speech where it is not heard. Uh, There is no place where the creator of the universe has not made himself known in his works. He makes himself known in history by giving promises and fulfilling them. He makes himself known to us in our conscience, even even as our own conscience uh, is troubled by our sin. Uh, He makes himself known through his word. He does it in a whole variety of ways, but we are blind and deaf and refuse to hear and listen. So J.C. Ryle says this, Christ is to the souls of men what the Son is to the world. He's the center and source of all spiritual light, warmth, life, health, growth, beauty, and fertility. All may look at him and drink health out of his light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. So likewise, he says, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts and not upon Christ. And that is our problem. We love the darkness and not the light. So why doesn't God do something miraculous and dramatic to get our attention so that we'll believe? Instead of using people to witness to us about him? Well, he did. He made the world. He entered the world. He became like us. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He walked on water. And after his death, he rose from the grave. And he appeared to hundreds at once. Nothing more dramatic or miraculous could be done. Yet people still refuse to believe. Because they are blind. Well, then what's the point, you say? Come on, preacher. What's the point of God sending a witness about the light or sending the light into the world if in our darkness we do not believe? How is anyone ever going to believe? Well, the answer the Bible gives is no one will. Not in themselves and by themselves. Not on their own and by their own resources. The blind cannot give themselves eyes to see. We have to get something from God. And that's the last point in verses 12 through 13. God gives life to the dead so that we can see and believe. Notice the language of verses 12 and 13. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, children born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. What's it saying here? Well, the world said we don't want him, but some, John says, received him. Some welcomed him, just as it is today. Just, Lord willing, as it is for all of us. Some still believe. How do they believe? By being born again. By being born from above. Born of God is what he says. Made new. Renewed. Given new hearts that are spiritually alive. So that we cross over from death to life. And out of darkness and into light. That's what it means to be born again. Those who believe, he says, have the right to become children of God. Children. Children of God. Receive Jesus, believe in Jesus, and you become his own. But why do you believe? You believe because you've been born of God. Why are you born of God? Not by the will of man, but by the will of God. In other words, the world's rejection of God can't frustrate God here. God is going to have to give his people faith, and he's going to do it. How do you become a child of God? Notice he says, were you born in the right family? No. It doesn't come biologically. It doesn't come by blood or by birth into a human family. It's not by the bloodline of your family that you became a Christian. And it doesn't matter that you had generation after generation of Christians in your family. That didn't make you a Christian. It doesn't come by the will of the flesh or by the fruit born of human physical desire. That cannot make you a child of God. Nor the will of man or a male is what he says. In other words, he means no husband or no father, no matter how holy he is, can produce by himself a child of God. The alternative to these is not any human act, but God himself. God himself making us come alive. So there's an age-old question in the Christian community that goes like this. Do we believe in order to be born again? Or are we born again in order to believe? Well, that question is answered by this text. Another way to put that question is, does the new birth, Bring about faith. Or does faith bring about the new birth? Well, verse 13 says that those who believe are those who have already been born of God. That'll that'll help you when you get to John chapter 3, if you want to turn over there. But you remember the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was uh, a leading Israelite. Uh, And he came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, unless you are born from above by the Holy Spirit, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus says to him, it is the Holy Spirit who makes you come alive. And with that life comes eyes to see Christ. And you'll never see him without this new life that the Spirit gives. Truly I say to you... uh, Unless one is born again, John 3, 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it's not seeing that causes you to be born anew. It's being born anew that causes you to see. My brother, Bill, when he was in third grade, um, was, was, we don't want to say blind as a bat, but they held him back a grade because his grades were so bad in school 
uh, and they thought at the time, ah, slow learner, you know, give him a little more time, maybe he'll catch up. But in third grade, he had an eye exam, and they discovered, of course, that he was, he was, he, he had terrible eyesight. Well, on the way home from receiving his first pair of glasses, he said to mom, mom, the trees have leaves. He, he'd just seen a, a splash of color before that. Riding along in a car, he couldn't see them before. His sight was bad. And people can't see God in the details of life and his creation and providence and even in scripture. Though it's all there. Because their eyes don't work correctly. Their spiritual sight isn't there. And God must give them the gift of new life that they might have the saving grace of faith in Jesus. So let me ask you just a couple of questions as we close. Do you believe? Then are you quick to credit him with your salvation? Does your heart sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me? I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And you say it was amazing grace from God. That brought this. Then, if you believe, friends, you give him all the glory and credit. But let me ask you this question Do you pray? Parents, do you pray for your children? Children, do you pray for your parents? Do you have lost loved ones? Do you pray for them? Do you have a neighbor you think is too skeptical to believe in Christ? Don't you know that they're just the perfect candidate? For God to glorify himself in raising the dead to life. So don't give up on someone. Give them over to God in prayer. God uses means to accomplish his ends. God who has decided the end from the beginning. Doesn't just snap his fingers and say done. He uses means to travel to the ends. Just like you and I drink Water and eat food, anticipating food and water will keep us alive for weeks. We don't say to ourselves, I'll be alive a month from now. So it doesn't matter whether I eat or drink. We don't do that because we know that food and water is the means by which God accomplishes his ends of keeping us alive. Likewise, preaching the gospel to people, praying for them are some of the means by which God actually chooses to work. And we get the, the privilege and the thrill of sharing with our Father in our Father's work. So do pray, friends, and don't give up on people. No cause is too difficult. No heart is too hard. No blindness is, is too blinding for God to do what God can do. And let me ask this, do we have the marks of those who have been born anew, born of God, who have life in Jesus? Well, ask yourself this, do we delight in his glory? Do we see that Jesus is God in the flesh and we believe in him? Have we tasted his forgiving love? Do our hearts cry out as children to a father? Do we sense that we belong to him? As his children, because of Jesus and not because of our works.
These are some of the marks of new life in those who belong to Christ. So God here, friends, meets us in our doubts with people who bear witness to him. God shines light in our darkness by sending Christ to us, but God also gives life to the dead so that we can see and believe and become the children of God. Let's praise and exalt him for it. Let's pray. Father, we do. Uh, Our boast is not in ourselves, but we boast in the Lord. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for new life in Jesus. We pray that you would grant that to everyone here and help us to be co-laborers with you in the work that you are doing in this world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.